ask for Your forgiveness, that You would allow the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ to wash over us and to renew us to a right relationship with You. And we pray that You'd help us to see You more clearly than we have before. And that in the lives of those who are suffering deeply right now, that You would show Your hand of mercy. And that You would show them most of all that that You love them and that You're in control of all things. And I pray that You'd help us, each of us, to be instruments in Your hand in that way, to help them to see Your love for them and Your loving control over all things. You are a great God, and You only have what is good planned for those who love You, those who are called according to Your purpose. And so we pray that You'd help us to be able to trust You like we never have before. Not so that You'll restore all of our fortunes or all of our previous way of life or satisfy all of our dreams, but even if You never give us what we had wanted, we pray that You'd help us to continue to trust You and to love You and to serve You even when it hurts. We know that part of the reason that there is suffering is because we live in a world that is cursed by sin. And things won't be completely clear in this lifetime, but in the in the age to come, in the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, He will be just as He always has been. And the main difference is that He will be seen to be just. No one will question His ways. Until that time... We have to fight. We have to fight against our own selves, our sin, our hearts that are prone to wander. And so we pray that You would be our vision, that You would be the Lord of our lives, that You would be our Master, and that You would lead us all the way. Help us to finish strong, not to give up in the midst of the fight against sin and even against the confusion that comes with suffering. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, who are we to question God's ways? Are we not made from the dust of the earth? Are we not His creation? Is He not the Creator? I mean, in times of non-offensive, non-suffering type circumstances, it's easy to follow God. It's fairly easy. Sometimes we forget about Him, but for the most part, it's pretty easy to accept God's ways and accept the way that He's treating people in the world because He's treating me well. But in times of suffering, we tend toward questioning Him. Sometimes it feels as if He is far away. But then He speaks. And He answers us in a way that will surprise us and will humble us and sometimes will shame us. And he says something like this, I am God. There is no other. Who are you to question me? I will ask you the questions and you see if you can answer. This is what he does to Job. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 38. 
Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Today we're going to see that because God has universal care and power over all creation, just like we just we sing about, and this is our Father's world, that because He has universal care and power over all things, His ways cannot be questioned, even when we don't understand. God's ways cannot be questioned. Job had been tormented for days, weeks, probably months, and maybe even years by this suffering that he endured, losing his family and all his wealth, all of his resources. All he had to show for himself was his wife. He lost his health even. And even his wife asked him to, or called on him to curse God and die. And so Job's in a difficult spot. And yet he feels as if he did not deserve it. That he is suffering innocently. This is one of his claims, this is his main claim that he makes to his three friends because his three friends believe that if he is suffering, that it has to be for a reason. That God must have done it because of some previous sin that Job had committed. And so they try to dig down into the depths of Job's heart to see, okay, what is it? Let me see if we can peel back this onion and see exactly what the problem is here. And Job says, no, There's nothing. I've been upright. I'm a blameless, not in the sense that he's perfect, but but in the sense that he's a righteous man. I don't deserve this. The wicked should not prosper, and the righteous should not suffer in a perfect world. But Job knew that he didn't live in a perfect world, and we should recognize the same thing. Job, for the most part, is commended for his the way that he speaks about God, but we know from the end of the book here what we're going to see today that he's also condemned. He's rebuked in a way for crossing the line in some case. Overall, Job was righteous. He did not curse God and die like Satan was hoping he would do, like his wife asked him to do. Instead, he maintained his integrity. He he spoke rightly about God for the most part, but he did cross the line when he began to question God's ways. He says, where is my defender? Where are you, God? I need to talk to you. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to ask you questions. I want to lay out my case before you. And in his misery, he crosses the line of of attributing some sort of injustice to God as if, I know I'm just here. I know I'm not perfect. Job recognized that he was not completely perfect. But if you weighted the amount of sin and the things that he had done against God, and he weighted that compared to some of these other friends even perhaps, but even unbelievers, he did not deserve this sort of suffering. And what we saw was that in this world that is in rebellion against God, there is a category for innocent suffering, that there are real victims to real crimes or real illnesses, nothing that 
was deserved. And, and last week we looked at Elihu's speech and we saw that, that, that God is not punishing believers. That that sin does not come about because of something that we have done, necessarily. Now, there are corrective actions that God, God takes to protect us. We'll look at that next week when we... Or, I'm sorry, in two weeks when we look at um, the reason for suffering. But what Elihu is saying is that there is a legitimate category for innocent suffering. And he accepted what Job's argument was. And so now, God is going to speak. He overtakes Elihu here, not in a way to discredit Elihu. I think Elihu is closest to the truth of all of the friends. But, but in a way to, to say, listen, Job, I'm going to speak, and then let's see what you have to say about it. A few things that we need to keep in mind as we study this passage. First, God sees Job as righteous prior to his suffering. Isn't that what he said in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 7, I believe? He says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan didn't bring up the name Job. God did. He said, have you considered him? Because he is righteous. He fears me and he turns away from evil. So how did God see Job before Job's suffering? As a righteous man. Second thing that we... Uh, so, so what that means is God's going to rebuke him here, but we need to recognize that He's not rebuking him for previous sin before his suffering. He's rebuking him for some sort of sin that he committed during his suffering. Okay, and that doesn't mean that the suffering came as a result of what he would have done or something like that. God is just saying, listen, you haven't spoken exactly correct about me, so let me show you something. Second thing we need to keep in mind is that Job is not a skeptic. He's not questioning whether there is a God. Okay, He's not like one of these, uh, uh, these atheists or antagonists who just like, well, is that really true? Is God really out there? I don't know. See, Job's problem was that he knew God existed. And he knew God was just. And, but it didn't seem to square with what was going on in his life, right? So, if God were rebuking him as a skeptic, I think God's answer would be much different than what He gives here. So keep that in mind as we go through. Job is not a skeptic, and God sees Job as a righteous man. Look at verse, verses 1-3 through three again. We'll see God's contention with Job. What was God's problem with Job? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. First thing we know is that God answers in a what? In a whirlwind. In a storm. Why does God thunder like He does with such seemingly condemnatory questions? I think God does this to show His power, His greatness. So He doesn't answer in a little butterfly coming up to Job's ear. He answers in a storm. Job, you want to see my power? You want to question my ways? Let me show you something. So he answers him in a storm. See, Job wanted an interview with God. He signed his defense, Job did, in thirty-one, chapter 31, verse 35. But God's defense was not the, exactly what Job had in mind. This was not the conversation that Job expected. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. 
after God goes through all these things about His creation, chapter 40, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Okay, so this is God talking about Job. You are the fault finder. You're finding fault in me, the Almighty. Let him who reproves God answer it. He's saying, Job, now you speak. You're reproving me. Now it's time for you to speak. Job does in verses 3-5. through five. Notice God's response in verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? God says, you are the fault finder. You're finding fault in me, the Almighty. And you're trying to reprove me, verse 2. Verse 8 tells us that God's problem with Job is that he contended with him. That he invalidated God's judgment. And he, in a sense, he condemned God in order to justify himself. Now, Job should have known what it was like to be criticized wrongly, right? By his three friends. Oh, you must have done this. But Job did the very same thing to God, did he not? He wrongly accuses God of something that he did not do or, or who he was not. So Job, or now God is going to claim his innocence before Job, just like Job had done. But he's going to do it in a much more powerful way. And here's the point of what God is making. Job, if you can't understand the earthly things, then how can you understand the heavenly ones? How can you understand those things, Job? You are my creation. Don't try to bring up your ignorant evaluations before me. I created the world. Verse 8 says again, Would you condemn me in order to justify yourself? Does that make a whole lot of sense? Now, it's interesting that God does not answer all of Job's questions. In fact, He doesn't answer any of Job's questions. Job's saying, why is this happening to me? I didn't do anything deserving of this, and what does God say? He doesn't say anything about Job's suffering. He doesn't say anything about Job's righteousness. And that's what Job and his friends were debating. God doesn't come along and say, it's okay, Job, you're innocent. I know you're innocent because I already talked to Satan about this. I, I know what you, everything's okay. No, he says, don't question me, Job. So, if things are not clear for you, if things don't go your way, don't ever give into the temptation where you find fault with God. Or where you reprove God. Let me show you how I would do this. I could actually make a little bit better of a God than you can. Now, we would never say something like that. But when we question God's justice, that is simply what we are doing. We should never condemn God in order to justify ourselves. Well, let's look at um, verses 10 through 14 of chapter 40. Because God shows Job that he really does not have it figured out. Verse 10, Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. 
Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Job, if you think you have it all figured out, then then try taking over for me for a little while. If you can handle the wicked and the righteous and you know how they all need to be taken care of, then, then why don't you do that? And if you do it right, then, verse 14, I'll confess to you that your hand was right, that you know what is best. This is as close as God comes to giving an answer for suffering or an answer for evil. God says, listen, I handle it. You submit to me. Don't try justifying yourself. You leave it to me. Job wanted a conversation with God, didn't he? But it wasn't going as Job had planned. God was the one asking the question. It was as if God was saying, do you want to know all the answers for why the righteous suffer and why the wicked prosper? Then then why don't you step into the museum of my wisdom? Let me show you a few things, Job. Let me show you what it's like. Let me begin with the foundations of the universe. Turn back to chapter 38. Look over there at the animal life, Job, in my museum of creation. How about the the constellations and the sea animals and all these other things? Look at these things, Job. That's the answer that you need for why the righteous suffer and why the wicked prosper. I am God. There is no other. I've created it all. I control it all. And you cannot question me. Notice God's universal care and power. First, we see it over... Inanimate creation, verses 4 through 38. Notice verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of joy shouted, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Look down at verse 18. Have you understood the expanse of the earth, that is the heaven? Tell me if you know all this. Job, in chapter 3, you were talking about your birth and how you wish you hadn't been born. But what about the birth of the universe? Where were you, Job, when that all took place? When the angels were singing at, at, at my laying of that foundation, where were you? If you don't know how the world was made, Job... And don't expect to understand every single detail of life. You don't understand how the world was created, so so how could you understand all my ways? What about the sea, verse 8? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said... Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Look at verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Job, do you know how I formed the seas and and put boundaries around them and told them to go to certain places and stop at other places? Do you know how to do that? If I gave you control of that, could you do that? What about the sun? Verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. 
Joe, do you even know how the sun rises? Could, could you create a dawn? Could you allow the dawn to come? What about the netherworld, verse 17? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Joe, do you even know where it is? Do you know where the gates of death are? What about the weather? Could you handle the weather for a little while, Job? Verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has left a channel for the flood, or a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice? And the frost of heaven, who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the service of the deep is imprisoned. Look at verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the innermost being, or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heaven when the dust hardens in a mass and the clods stick together? Maybe you don't know how to form the earth, Job. Maybe you don't know how to put boundaries on the sea. But but let me just give you the weather just for a couple hours. Let's see if you can handle it. Do you even know where I store the snow for times of war and times of battle so I can dump it on different groups when I want to? What about the rain? Can you make it rain at any time that you want? You have no idea, Job, what I do every second of every day. How can you question me? Let's go out a little further from the earth. How about the consolations? Verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Do you realize how magnificent these stars are? How, how, they, how they help direct people where they ought to go? How they provide light and beauty? Do you even know about that, Job? I have power over inanimate creation. Things that cannot speak. I know how to control them. I know how to create them. And I know how to sustain them every second of every day. What about animate creation? Non-personal beings like animals. Chapters 38-39. through 39. God has care over animate creation. We'll look at a few of these. Look at the lion in verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy... The, this is chapter 38, verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Job, do you even know that these lions need to fill their stomachs? Do you know where they can get their food? If you're in charge of feeding these lions, could you do it? What about the raven? Verse 41, Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? You see here that God is not only powerful over creation, that He controls it all, but He also cares for it, doesn't doesn't He? He cares for even the smallest little raven 
It seems to have no significance. God knows about it and God cares about it. What about the mountain goat, Job 39, 1-4? Do you know when a mountain goat gives birth? Do you even know that that's happening on the other side of the world or out in the wilderness? Do you know that that's happening, Job? What about the wild donkey, verses 5-8, through or the wild ox? You think it's hard to contain a wild donkey? Try making a pet out of a wild ox, he says. What about the stupid ostrich, verses 13-18? through Or the horse for battle, verse 19. Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. And he does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground and he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trump sounds, he says, Aha! And he scents the battle from afar and the thunder of the captains and the war cry. You sense in this strong animal the fearlessness of it. That that you can hear those sounds of battle even as we're reading them. And yet you're a little bit frightened, but not for the horse. He loves it. He is built for it. Job, do you know how that happens? God cares for the hawk and the eagle in verses 26 through 30. But God doesn't just care for these ordinary creatures that we know many much about, but also these extraordinary creatures in chapter 40, verses 15 to 24, we have behemoth. Behold now behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker, his, uh, maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down in the covert of the reeds in the marsh. The lotus plants covers him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? The word bohemoth in verse 15 means large land animal. It was the the word that they used for the largest land animal, so it could be a hippopotamus or an elephant, as some suggest. But look at verse 17 again. And think about the tail of a hippopotamus and an elephant. See if it fits. He bends his tail like a cedar. Could be talking about something much larger, like a dinosaur. But the point is, is that whatever animals we are talking about, they are very great. God made them. God made them powerful, more powerful than any human. That's why at the end he says, can anyone capture this enormous creature? Can you put a hook in its nose and make it your pet? He is, verse 19, the first of the ways of God. If God can control this large animal that overpowers you, Job, can you not trust Him to care for humans who are much smaller? 
What about Leviathan, verse 1 of chapter 41? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you or will he speak to you soft, soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? He goes on to talk about what this enormous creature does. This seems to be a sea creature of some kind. And we don't know exactly what it is. Some people say it's a, a crocodile, but it seems as if, to me, it's much bigger. In fact, it, it seems as if it's bigger than even the behemoth that we just read about. So if this great creature is so mighty and so great, and you can't stand before it, Job, you can't put your hand on its head and say, come here, little guy, because if you do, you will not do it again. Verse 8. You'll remember that battle that you had with it, and you will not do it again. You can throw all sorts of harpoons into it, but it won't affect it. It's too large for you, Job. So if you can't stand against this enormous creature, then how can you possibly stand before me who made him? I am God, and there is no other. Notice Job's response in chapter 40, verse 3. God says, Speak to me. Let him who reproves God answer. Verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Job confesses his smallness before God. His foolishness. He says, I put my hand over my mouth. I should not have spoken. I spoke once about you and your injustice, but not anymore. I'm not going to do that. Job recognized God's sovereignty. Job recognized God's power. Notice his second confession in chapter 42, verse 1. Chapter 42, verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God. Therefore I declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In verse 4 he quotes himself again. Here he quotes God. God saying, Hear now and I will speak and I will ask you and you instruct me. Now Job responds, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Three parts of Job's confession that we need to understand. Number one, verse two tells us that he recognizes God's power and sovereignty. When God speaks, he recognizes that God's purposes will not fail. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Now that you've shown yourself to me, God, I now recognize None of your plans can be thwarted. I am too small to question your ways. The second thing we recognize in verse 3 is that Job sees God's infinite 
wisdom. Verse 3, he quotes God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job says, Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. When I saw your wisdom before, God, I saw it as, yeah, above me, but I was kind of right here. And I was ready to talk to you and at least show you something that maybe wasn't really working out in your mind perfectly. But now that I see you, I see that your wisdom is way up there. And you've spoken of things too wonderful for me to understand. I can't understand your ways, God. And the third response that Job has is that he repents. Verses 4-6. through Verse 5 says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. God, I despise myself. I now see the foolishness of my ways. Now Job is not... He's not uh, confessing some hidden sin before the suffering started. He's not saying, see, now I know why I'm suffering because of some sins that I didn't see before, but now I recognize. No, he's saying, while I was suffering, I began to question your justice. So when I look back on that, I, I repent. I despise myself. I shouldn't have asked for an answer. I shouldn't have demanded to have a conversation with you as if you owed me. You have to tell me what's going on here, God. You owe me nothing. You are the Creator. So here Job is brought to his knees. First, by his suffering. And second, by God's superior knowledge and power. And the only response he has is, I know, God, that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Job now accepts the ways of God. And what you need to recognize here is that God did not restore all of His goods to him when he made this confession. Do you see that? That doesn't happen until verse 7. Job is now accepting the suffering that he has. God doesn't promise him, Job, it's going to be okay. I'm going to make everything right. Job still doesn't know. So in the deepness of his suffering, Job says, I accept your ways, God, even the suffering that you've brought on me. And what's interesting about God's response is it's not to help Job understand. He's not saying, Job, let me, let me give you the answers to all these questions that popped up in your mind. You remember how you were unsure about this and why I was doing this? Let me show you. Instead, what does he do? He says, I'm God, don't question me. Job never comes away from this going, oh, now I understand. Thank you. Now I can live because I know the answers. The best thing that you and I can do in life is to know God in the way that He has revealed Himself and nothing greater. We don't need to understand God more than He's revealed Himself. Okay? He's revealed us revealed to us Himself in His Word. We don't need to try to seek anything deeper. In places where we don't understand God, the places where He hasn't revealed Himself and what He's doing, then what do we need to do? We simply trust Him. This is what God's calling on Job to do. Let me leave you with two observations and five points of exhortation. First observation... 
God's response, God responds in Scripture to those who demand an answer for the problem of evil and suffering. God responds. Now, God doesn't always respond in the way we want Him to respond. Ideally, He'd give us all the answers. Tell us why there's innocent suffering. Tell us why we are suffering. God does respond in Scripture, and we're going to talk about that in two weeks. Uh, Actually, it's going to be three weeks. We're going to do one on why God allows evil. And in that, I want to take you through some Scripture and show you how God responds. Sometimes He just ignores the person who questions His ways when it comes to evil. Sometimes He responds, but, but in a veiled way. Other times, like with Job, He simply rebukes the person who questions Him. And other times, He gives us a window into what He's doing. And I'll show you a little bit more about that. And that's going to be from Romans chapter 9. But I can't get, dig into all that this, this morning. So God often responds to people when they question His ways or what He's doing in evil. Second observation is that when God reveals Himself to us, we, like Job, should be humbled. When God reveals Himself to us, we should be humbled. And what is the only way in which God reveals Himself to us? The way that God reveals Himself to us is in the Word. He doesn't come talking to you at the door. He doesn't call you up on the phone. He speaks to you in His Word. And when we see God for who He is, we are humbled. This is what happens to Job. I think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he stands before the throne of God and and he immediately says, I despise myself and my people. We are. I am a person of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I think of John in Revelation when when he sees God for who he is. He, he simply bows down and worships. Or Thomas before the resurrected Lord, he says, My Lord and my God. The proper response we should have when we see ourselves for who God sees us, for how God sees us, and we see God for who he is, should be humility, repentance. Five points of exhortation. Number one, remember God's purpose in Job's suffering. Okay? God doesn't tell Job what it is, but God's purpose in Job's suffering is to exalt Himself. God wants to show His greatness before Satan and the rest of the angels. God's working to exalt Himself, to honor His own name. So that's the primary thing that God is doing in your suffering. God's not going to come down and tell that to you. You have to, you have to pull that from the Word of God. And, and we know that from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. So everything that happens in your life is for the glory of God so that God can be honored. Number two, we need to trust in the sovereignty of God. When things don't go as we have planned or as we desire... We question God. We question God's sovereignty. Either He's not a good God, not a completely good God, or He doesn't have complete control. Because maybe He could be a good God, but He just doesn't have control. He can't do anything about it. Or He could be a God who's in control of everything, but He doesn't really care about me. What God is saying is, I am sovereign and I'm good. Let me show you 
in my creation how I am. Don't question me. Number three, trust in the goodness of God. Okay, so first, trust in the sovereignty of God and in the goodness of God. Now, how do we know that God is good? Psalm 94.11 says, No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. God is good. There is no evil in Him. He doesn't have any ill intentions for you. Only good. Remember God's sovereignty. Remember God's goodness. Number four, in times of suffering, God doesn't necessarily want you to understand everything. He doesn't want to give you all the answers. If you had all the answers, would you really need God? Would you ever go to Him if you had it all figured out? Ask Solomon, the wisest man in the world. What happened to him? He didn't turn out too good, did he? Because he trusted in his own wisdom. God sometimes withholds the answers from you for your good so that you will continually depend on Him. So don't see that as a bad thing. We often suffer. We sometimes understand. But we must always trust God. When, when you don't understand, all you're left to do is to beg God for mercy and to trust His loving care. And so that means, number five, don't question God's ways. Don't question God's wisdom. There is no authority higher than God. He is the absolute authority over all things and all people, and He cannot be questioned. He will not be tested to your little arguments or questions. What if? His Word even is not subject to our own imperfect human standards. It's not doubtful or disputable as if we could put it before court and what about this? I mean, it's God. We are the clay. He is the potter. It's as foolish for us to question God as for a lump of clay to say to the potter, why would you make me this way? Why would you allow it to me to be formed in this way of, of suffering? Why would you allow this? It, it makes no sense for us to do that. Genesis 18.25 says, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The implied answer is yes. He will always do right. He judges all things. He's not a corrupt judge. Do you believe that? Do you believe what God has told you about Himself and about His way, that He is completely pure and that He is completely sovereign over all things? And If you do, then how can you question Him as the Creator and the judge of all the earth? When God has spoken... And he has announced his intentions. We have no right to question him. We have no right to demand more evidence. We learn as much as we can about God and about his ways, about how he has revealed. But then when we can't figure it out any farther, he hasn't revealed himself or what he's doing. We simply stop and we trust God. God, you are in control. You are the creator. You are the sustainer. 
You know about all of these millions of little things that are going on in every part of the world and you're in control of them all. I know about very few of them and I can't control hardly any of them. So I will not question you. I put my hand over my mouth and I repent in dust and ashes. I despise myself. I should never have spoken about you in that way. Please understand that I'm not trying to minimize your suffering in any way as if it's something small to God. No, God cares about your suffering and He actually brings it into your life for good. He's either taking something out of you that needs to be taken out like a, like a loving surgeon or He's taking something out of you that may be potentially dangerous down the road. And how can we not be thankful for God's loving hand in that way. Let's pray. Father, what an enormous truth we have seen today as You have revealed Yourself to us, as You've spoken to Job in the hearing of his three friends and in the hearing of us as well. We have thought on many occasions when trouble has come our way or when something hasn't gone exactly as planned, we have thought without verbalizing it that we could do a better job at controlling, maintaining, leading this universe than you do. But when we look at a passage like this, we are humbled We recognize that that we are nothing in comparison to You. We know very...